Well, this Lent, we are going through the uh, incredible part of Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, chapter 8, which kind of marks the end of the first section of Romans and opens us up to the second section of Romans, but in and of itself almost stands alone as one of the great affirmations of faith in the scriptures. And I've said it more than once, not only in this series, but in many others, that the prayer that fuels the life of faith, the prayer that really is at the heart of what we pray when we're on the road with Jesus is really a two-part question. And that's the question, who are you, Lord? And who am I? We never stop growing and discovering answers to both of those questions if we're on the way of faith. We don't arrive at the final answer and suddenly have all things in place and the rest of it all just takes care of itself. Because as in any relationship, we never really fully know the other. And we're constantly learning things about ourselves as we are in relationship with the other. These two questions, who are you, Lord, and who am I, really characterize our work along the way of faith. They, they kind of hem it in behind and before and focus us on what is it that God has done? Who, who are we in light of this thing that God has done for us in Christ? And so as we grow in our knowledge of God, we're also growing in our knowledge of ourselves. And I think Romans 8 gives witness to this process. Paul is exploring who God is and what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. And he's also showing and telling us the effect of that work in us in terms of defining us, telling us who we are. And last time we talked about how God breathed life into us through his spirit and the effect of that and what Karl Barth called the impossible possibility of walking toward the spirit, of transformation, of being made new by the breath of life. And today, as we look at verses 12 through 17, there's a bit more of this same idea being developed of, of who we are. What does transformation look like? What is the source of this transformation? And Paul develops this a bit more by talking about who we are and, and who we are not in Christ. And he says essentially that we have not inherited a spirit of slavery, but we have inherited a spirit of adoption. We are not slaves, but we are children. So let's look at verses 12 through 17 today, and I want to pick up at verse 11 so we can see what the therefore is there for. And uh, so I'll, I'll go back to where we were last week and remind us of our context. Uh, verses 11 through 17, chapter 8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, 
but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Lord, bring us to that place that your Holy Spirit always brings us, which is the assurance of your presence, the assurance of your steadfast love, the assurance that we belong body and soul, not to ourselves, but to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so empower us to live into that identity and reflect your love to our world. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm kind of a U.S. history nerd. I took nine upper division classes in U.S. history as electives at UCLA. They weren't part of my major, but they sure helped me in my major of political science. But I love U.S. history, and I've been reading John Meacham's biography of Abraham Lincoln called And There Was Light. And I'm loving it. I won't wave it in front of you and say, you have to read this, but you really have to read this. Um, <laughs> it's an amazing thing. I, I want it to be required reading for all U.S. citizens. But I cannot read Romans 8 and Paul's mention of slavery without also reflecting on this book that talks so much about slavery and about Abraham Lincoln's life in relationship to slavery. I cannot talk about slavery and Paul without thinking about Meacham's discussion of slavery in this country in this time of Abraham Lincoln's life and death. There's so much that I would love to comment on in this book, and you'll probably be hearing more about it as time goes on. But suffice it to say that it, it seems to me like our political climate today is not unlike the polarity and the rancor of the 1850s just prior to the Civil War, and Meacham points to reasons why that's the case. But one place that I want to comment on in particular is Meacham's discussion of the Dred Scott decision of the Supreme Court in 1856. Supreme Court sought to solve the rancor and the polarity of what was happening with slavery, an increasing sense of people in the South saying it was a positive good and some people in the North saying that it was a, a necessary evil and those others saying it's an, an evil that has to be er eradicated, but either way it needs to end if the union's going to be preserved. But the Dred Scott decision in 1856 was the Supreme Court's attempt to solve the question by coming down hard on one side of the polarity. And uh, just to give you the background of that case, if you don't remember your, your US history classes, Dred Scott was a, a slave who had come north to Wisconsin, Wisconsin, and had been free for 10 years almost. When he was captured as a runaway slave and taken back to Missouri, he filed suit under a portion of Missouri law that was called once free, always free. And the court upheld his suit. And then the state Supreme Court said, no, you're not free. 
And so his case went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And Meacham has this to say about the decision that the Supreme Court made. The justices on the Taney Court were hardly diverse in their political viewpoints. Seven were Democrats, five including Taney, the Chief Justice, was from Maryland, and were, the others were from slave states as well, the others of those five. In the decision announced on March, in March of 1857 by seven votes to two, a majority essentially ruled that the Declaration of Independence's assertion of equality did not include black people, that black people were not citizens, and that the Missouri Compromise and any future restrictions on slavery was unconstitutional. Dred Scott had no standing in court, for he had no standing in the American order other than the fact of his, his enslavement. In Tawney's words, black people, quote, are not included and were not intended to be included under the word citizens in the Constitution. On the contrary, they were at that time considered as subordinate and inferior class of human beings who had been subjugated by the dominant race and whether emancipated or not, yet remained subject to their authority, unquote. Black people, Tani went on, quote, had for more than a century before been regarded as beings of inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race, either in social or political relations, and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. Then Meacham continues, the seven justices were deploying the power of the judiciary to reorder American reality by declaring the anti-slavery cause unconstitutional. The great debate in the nation, the debate in which Lincoln was playing a part, turned on whether all were included in Jefferson's assertion that all men are created equal, and therefore whether slavery was in keeping with the aspirations of the Republic. The Taney Court wanted to end that conflict of ideas in a single blow. Move to the extreme, declare it to be truth, and let's get on with it. It was a sense and a ruling that said hierarchy and servitude were the norms, almost as if to say it's the way God created things to be. And the church followed suit with this, by the way. Many a Presbyterian minister in the South preached this same idea. The framers of the Constitution, according to the Supreme Court, recognized this as truth, and whites, therefore, were to rule over blacks. Full stop, end of sentence, end of discussion. Hierarchy and servitude as the norms. Quite frankly, much of religion in our world, irrespective of the religion and irrespective of the time in history, has often started with the same assumption. Hierarchy and servitude is the norm. Who is God? God is master. Who are we? We are slaves. And therefore, life is about accepting this hierarchy and doing our best to seek God's pleasure and avoid God's wrath. That's a lot of what religion is about. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. 
So make God happy and live. Make God unhappy and die. But here in Romans 8, Paul says no. Paul says not just no, but categorically no. Absolutely not no. Or absolutely not. Well, however, I, I just goofed on something right there. Paul says no. The order of things is not based on hierarchy and servitude, the powerful keeping the powerless in check. The order that is affirmed in God's order is that you are a child of God. The order that is affirmed in God's order is not servitude and hierarchy, but relationship and freedom. You are a child of God, a sibling of Jesus. You have union with God. You are not under God's thumb, but you are actually in God's heart and thus free to grow into the expansive, liberating reality of relationship with God. And let me unpack that a bit as Paul unpacks it a bit in the remaining verses of our text for today. He says, you have not received a spirit of slavery, but you have received a spirit of adoption. In other words, in Christ, God has adopted you, welcomed you into relationship. You are a child and an heir. You are entitled to all of the abundance that that suggests. You are not God's slave. You are God's child. You are not forever tied to the religious processes of trying to keep God happy and avoid God's wrath. Life is not about proving your worthiness to live, but enjoying the abundance into which you have been ushered. You have not received a spirit of slavery, but a spirit of adoption. But it's interesting, Paul says, no, you are not slaves. But right at the outset of this text today, he says, but you are debtors. And you might ask the question, what's the difference? <laughs> but there's a big difference when you think about the debt that's being paid and who has the ability to pay it. What's the difference between being a slave and a debtor? Well, there's a big difference. The debt you have cannot be repaid. Relationship is not earned. It is only granted. It cannot be bought in a transaction. It can only be offered and reciprocated. You are not under the thumb of a burdensome debt that you have to repay or that you will always be worried about repaying, but you are recipients of a gift which you, for which you can only be grateful. Debt can only be paid, in this case, with gratitude, because it's the only thing we can offer in response to what God has done for us. Life is a not about paying something back to God. God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your exertions. God needs exactly what God offered you, which is relationship. Life is not about paying something back to God. It's about paying forward the abundance that we did nothing to earn. And so Paul says, yes, we are indeed debtors. In the end, 
Certitude is far more generative than fear. Gratitude is far more generative than fear. Certitude about our identity is much better than fearing that maybe we're not quite there. And gratitude is the only thing we can offer in response. And so I read verses 15 and 16 again for us. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we have received a spirit of adoption, when we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. This is not the separation of hierarchy and servitude, but the union of relationship and freedom. The spirit bearing witness with our spirit or in conversation with our spirit, this is a description of union with God, not an attempt to struggle to get there, but an attempt to to simply relax into what has been declared to be true. This is the relationship. Nothing can hamper it. You are united with Christ and literally carried with him into the very heart of the Trinity. Participants in Christ's grand story of reconciliation and faithfulness. Heirs of that impossible possibility of walking after the Spirit, transformed in our lives and wanting to grow in relationship with God. In John 15, Jesus says essentially the same thing. He says, for this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants or slaves any longer because the slave does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. There's also a story that Jesus tells, and I'll close with this, wherein he teaches the same truth but he kind of lets the religious come to that conclusion themselves as he tells about their alter ego described in the parable. It's the parable of the prodigal son, but it's really more about more than just that son who decides he wants to leave and gets forgiven when he comes home. It could also be called the parable of the older brother who stays home and is royally, you know what, angry, because his brother gets the fatted calf and he's never had a party for himself. But it could also be called the parable of the waiting father who waits not only for his 
younger son to come back, but waits for his older son to come into the party. And in fact, doesn't just wait, but goes out after him to bring him in. And in their exchange, the father asks the son to come into the party and the son essentially refuses and says, I have slaved for you. I have worked like a slave for you all my life. And look what's happened. This good for nothing gets to go and spend his share of the inheritance and come back and be embraced by you. But the father's response is quite telling. He essentially says to the older son, you're not a slave. You are always with me and all that is mine is yours. The father's word to the elder brother is God's word to us as well. You're not a slave. You are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Nothing can take away the abundance that is yours. So rest in that. Share out of your gratitude for that abundance and so find your way to the freedom for which you were created. Let's pray. Lord, draw us away from the lie that hierarchy and servitude are the components of our life with you and draw us into the truth that relationship and freedom is that for which you created us. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So open up our eyes to see a vision of that place of rest and then empower us by your breath of life to occupy it and so find our way to that broad and open space where we do nothing but understand the ever-increasing bounds, the pleasant boundaries of your steadfast love. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.